Part of me is a little bit curious if I just didn't speak. And would you keep going for the rest of the evening, just talking, and I'll just stand here and see what happens. I didn't. Uh, For those of you that don't know, my name's Emily, um, and I come to this church, and I preach here from time to time. And um, this morning, if you were here, you would have heard David Coffey do a great exposition of Genesis 40 to 50, and I'm going to draw on some of what he brought this morning again, so apologies for that. Um, I'm not going to be able to use illustrations of the time that I met the Queen or going to Russia. Um, but Finn was, was really kind because I was sitting next to him this morning. I'm like, oh man, I haven't met the Queen, the Archbishop of Canterbury. I've not flown and sat in government uh, rooms. And Finn said, no, Emily, but you do bring chocolate. So I, I actually, Finn, don't have chocolate for this evening, but for you, there is. <laughs> you go, enjoy. So I didn't want to let Finn down or disappoint him in any way. So you're welcome and enjoy. And the rest of you, I'm sorry. I'm out. I'm out of chocolate. But we are into God's Word. And um, we're in Genesis. And it's quite an exciting night for those of you that have been going on the journey of Genesis since September. Um, We are now in the concluding chapters. And in theory... Tonight, we should be reading chapters 40, 41, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 to 50. Are you up for that? No. Okay, that was a definite no. Um, No, we we won't. What? Yeah, you should have have all done it yourselves. If you haven't, um, then what we're going to do this evening, we're not going to read a chunk of text. What we're going to do is you're going to need to have your Bibles out in front of you. You're going to need to have your fingers ready to do things like some acrobatics with your pages because we're going to go through those chapters but looking at specific verses that hopefully help take us through in a meaningful way. Um, But before we do that, it's worth... When we um, become Christians and we follow God, it's always really exciting and really important to keep looking ahead and to keep being willing to learn and to keep willing be willing to be challenged and be willing to grow in new areas and keep looking ahead. But actually also, I think sometimes we forget this, as followers of Jesus, it's important to look at what's been, look at what's gone, look at, look at the past, look at times when God's moved, look at times, remember times when God answered prayer. Recall that time. And we can either do that orally by talking with one another and saying, can I just tell you a time? I was like, 15, but there was this moment. And talk about those times, recall those times, so that we don't forget what has been, because it's part of a big picture. And with Genesis, I think it's really important that we don't forget what has been. And um, there's an author and pastor called Chuck Swindle, and he's got a great little visual aid for this that I wonder if you would join me on. Um, I don't know if you've got the picture there, Steve, um, of the first slide. But when Andy asked you, he didn't know I was going to do this, but when he asked you to move forward and squidge in a bit together, um, metaphorically speaking, so don't panic, I wonder if you might imagine, there's like a, you know like those, I've never been, but the films tell me it is, in America, those suburbs where they have the big detached houses and they have those verandas and those swing seats and they seem to go out in the evening and sit on the swing seat and just look down the road at all the other big houses with their nice gardens. Well, Swindle suggests that when we come to the Bible, we imagine ourselves sitting on the swing suite of a veranda. So there's a little picture there. 
Um, so what I'd love us to imagine this evening is we've all squished even more than we already have already onto one of those swing seats next to each other. And we're going to, you can either close your eyes to imagine this, or you might not if you're a bit uncomfortable, but imagine looking down the street. Okay, so we're sitting on a veranda on the swing, street, swing seat, and we're looking out. And I want you to imagine that the view you're looking out on the road ahead stretches from at one end, an earth under construction, and then sweep your gaze to the street, right to the other end, and you see, right in the far distance of the other end, shiny streets, which represent a new heaven and a new earth at the other. And it's quite a view. There are lots of neighbours too. Now, if you look down at the beginning of the street, in the direction of Genesis, you can see Adam working up a sweat in the garden as he prunes and sees to it, talking to Eve. As you look a bit further down the street, there's Noah building a boat, all his skills as a carpenter. As you come a little bit further down, along the pavement is Abraham and Sarah promenading Isaac. And then a little bit further down from that, it's a bit of a kerfuffle as Jacob wrestles with God and works out who God is and who he is in light of that. And more recently, our eyes have been caught up on the doorstep of Joseph. And Joseph actually occupies more space in Genesis than Adam, Noah, Abraham, or even Joseph's dad, Jacob. So I'm just going to recap in the words of Swindle the story of Joseph for those of you that don't know it. We stop outside Joseph's door as a teenager and have been on a non-stop roller coaster ride ever since. It began with a smooth journey where we suddenly were plunged into a pit and shot back out again into a wrenching 90-degree turn towards Egypt. There are God's blessings, and they quickly took hold, and we begin a steady clickety-clack ascent following Joseph, Potiphar's personal steward. At the top, we meet a real screamer, Mrs. Potiphar. She has spun us around and hurled us headlong into a dark Egyptian dungeon. Inside, we bottomed out, started to climb, interpreted a dream, and then were nosedived into forgetfulness. But by Pharaoh's order and God's grace, we blasted off into an ear-popping ascent from prisoner to prime minister. Cresting this position, we ploughed into ten brothers, heard a jolting accusation, then shot in a loop to Canaan for Benjamin and back again to Egypt. From there, we careened through a few unexpected twists and turns as Joseph put his brothers to the test. And after that, we round another curve with incredible G-force. It began with Joseph revealing his identity and his brothers feeling pinned to the floor by the crushing guilt force of their own consciences. Joseph's grace and forgiveness eased us out of that curve straight into a second loop, this time to pick up Joseph's father and the Israelite nation. Swinging down from Canaan, we met Joseph for a heart-stopping reunion with his father. Finally, the brakes begin to take hold, and we slow as Joseph helps his family guide safely past Pharaoh, where they survive the famine crisis. I'm just going to pray. Father, I thank you too that you give us the minds and the ability to recall what you have done in the past. I thank you that it is recorded in your word. And Lord, as we come now to these chapters, I pray by your spirit you would open our eyes and our hearts to the truth of you, 
who you promise as the same yesterday, today, and forever. So Lord, I ask for each one of us here, we might hear you afresh, or for the first time, the reassurance that you are here, you are real, you are active, and you are changing lives. You changed Joseph's life back then, and you have not stopped ever since. So Jesus, we come under and into that this evening. By your grace, please. Amen. Amen. Um, So this was the hook that I decided that we would all have in common to get through 10 chapters of Genesis this evening. I'm thinking, not all of us here have ever had to be in charge of a famine relief program. So I thought, no, that's not going to keep us all held together. I don't think all of us have bought the government corridors of power. No, not all of us, so that's not going to hold us together. I'm like, what, what is the thing that, through these chapters, we can all relate to? Um, are we all interpreters of dreams? No, no, that's not going to hold us all together. And then I came across the thing that I think all of us will be able to get and understand and appreciate that we find in, in these ten chapters. Have you got the next slide there, Steve, please? Um, I think what we all have in common that we see in the 10 chapters that you may have noticed if you've been able to read them during the week is this quote um, that, that comes out through these verses. We all have in common with Joseph this, and I'm going to say words wrong and I'm saying in advance I'm going to mispronounce them. We all have in common lacrimal glands <coughs> secreting lacrimal fluid which flows through the main excretory ducts into the space between the eyeball and the lids. When the eyes blink, the lacrimal fluid is spread across the surface of the eye. Lacrimal fluid gathers into the lacrimal lake and is drawn into the puncture. There's doctors in here, by the way, and I'm doing this out loud. By the capillary action, then flows through the lacrimal that at the inner corner of the eyelids, entering the lacrimal sac and then onto that duct, and finally, into the nasal cavity. Do you agree we all have that in common? You do! I'm pleased we're all on the same page this evening. I think we have all that in common too, and so did Joseph. This description, most commonly known to you and me, is tears. Tears, that is what's being described there. And that's what I want to use to take us through the chapters that we're about to look at. Um, There's a range of emotions, aren't there, that can produce tears. Thank you, Steve. Um, You can have tears mostly, usually associated with sadness and pain. But I don't know if you've ever experienced times where laughter, you laugh so hard, that has caused you to cry. You just laugh and laugh and laugh and tears stream down your face. Whether you've been shocked or scared, that can cause tears. Whether you've just been in awe of something and you've just welled up. You're like, where did that come from? You just well up with tears. The thing is, culturally... It's not really, tears aren't really hugely accepted, are they? Do you know what I mean? There's that kind of pull yourself together. You don't don't need to do that. We can be quite vulnerable when we cry. It's quite a Western British thing to be quite private about our tears. My um, father-in-law passed away recently. And at his cremation, they asked if I would lead everybody in prayer. Now, in theory, in my head, I was like, yes, I can do that. The reality of getting up at my father-in-law's cremation and getting through the prayers was really hard, and I actually really lost it in terms of tears. And I was so self-conscious of my tears and felt so vulnerable, and it suddenly struck me, you know, it's just not the given thing. We're just crying in front of people. It's kind of an unspoken, it's not okay. Even at my father-in-law's funeral, I felt very self-conscious of my tears. 
So that's why I take great comfort in these verses. Because Joseph, essentially prime minister, we're going to look at five accounts. David looked at them with you this morning. We're going to look at them again now. Five accounts where this man, who's been what he's been through, and is doing what he's doing, is a man of emotion. And it's okay. And do you know why I take encouragement that they're recorded here? Because it must have been important. Why do we need to know that Joseph wept? Why do we need to know that he cried? Why is it even of any significance? Well, shall I tell you why, I think? Because God is not an objective, biological, clinical God that describes tears, as I badly tried to describe in the way Wikipedia described tears. God isn't an objective, clinical being. He is a God of compassion and a God of emotion and a God who cares And I think he cares, and that's why we get to see Joseph's tears written down. We're told in Psalm 56, You've kept a track of my every toss and turn through the sleepless nights. Each tear entered in your ledger, each ache written in your book. God knows about every tear, and he cares about every emotion behind every tear you've ever shed, whether they be up in front of people or whether they be in private that you think nobody ever knows about. God does, and he cares. And he's a God that's on the move. So let's see what we can learn about the tears that Joseph shed. Uh, If you're able to, could you turn to Genesis? Our first little account is Genesis 42, verse 24. Please. Um, I've given you a kind of, tried to give you a recap of the story. Hopefully you know it well enough. Maybe Jason Donovan's come to mind. But that's the story we're talking about and we're going through. Um, The first uh, verse, 42, when Joseph and his brothers meet in Egypt. Remember, they abandoned him, they put him in a pit, and he was sold on. He's not seen them since then. And in verse 42, chapter 42, he meets them. They've come because they've heard that there is grain in Egypt and they need to stock up. So they've come to find the grain and inadvertently have come across their brother, but are yet to know it. So verse 42, 24 says, He, Joseph, turned away from them and began to weep, but then turned back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. So Joseph has this first encounter with his brothers. After all that time, years have passed. The last time he saw them, They were just wanting the back of him, selling him on to Egypt, wanting nothing more to do with him. (gasps) And there they are in front of him. And what does this man do? He weeps. And why does he weep? Because of the memories, because of the flashbacks of his past and the hurt that his family had caused him that really shouldn't come from those closest to us. But they do. I wonder if you have memories... Uh, of people, of flashbacks of times in the past when you have been hurt. They don't always go away. They don't always get erased. We don't always get over them. They can lie there dormant. We can carry on, but they can sit there. And what we see here is for Joseph, they've sat there. He's a normal man. He's like you and me. And they hurt. And when he's faced with the reality of his brothers in front of him, his mind, his memory is taken back to those hurts. But it's recorded here. Why is it recorded here? Because God knows and God cares. Painful tears. But let's look at the next set of tears. In 43, told you you're going to have to work hard. Turn the page over to 43, uh, beginning at verse 29. 
As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. Again, that really deep impact that Joseph wasn't prepared to have out on public display in that moment. He had the opportunity to withdraw and privately go and weigh and weep at the tears of grief. That was his youngest brother he was faced with. Their mother had died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin. And again, there's that stirring up of that tears that we usually associate with sadness and pain. There they are again, welled up and come to the fore. That broken relationship, that sense of loss. Those questions he must have asked, do they care? I'm faced with my brothers looking at me. I know that my stomach's in a knot, and I know that I'm on the verge of tears, but do they even care? Do they even remember me? Do they even recall selling me on? Do they even have a clue how much it has impacted my life? In the sense that now I'm Pharaoh's right-hand man, but also in the sense that I am deeply hurt and wounded by what's gone on in the past. All this going on in this, in this statesman's head as he deals with his family unbeknown to them. Okay, 45. Turn over the page again, please. 45, verses 1 and 2. This moment has come now. Joseph's had interaction with his brothers. Um, he's, he's seen them. He's sent them away. They've come back again. So he's had some days or weeks to mull over, when do I tell them who I am? When do I reveal myself to them? When can I stomach the repercussions of what's going to happen when I tell them who I am? and who they're facing, and who they're coming to for help. While time passes, and in 45, verses 1 and 2, Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants. And he cried out, Make everyone leave my presence. There was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. So look, it's taken quite a journey of days or weeks for him to get to the place where he's willing for that vulnerability to come out. No longer am I Pharaoh's right-hand man as far as you're concerned. I'm unveiling myself as the brother that you sold on, that you abandoned, that you rejected from the brotherhood. He does it in that moment, and it's costly, and he weeps. But here, the tears of reconciliation. That tears of making himself vulnerable and putting himself out there as a brother, no longer as Pharaoh's right-hand man. Not even sure how that's going to be received. How's that going to go down? Those tears of vulnerability that he puts in front of them. And then 45, still in 45, verses 14 to 15. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him, weeping. And he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. And afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Absolutely beautiful. So that moment of vulnerability ends in this mutual reconciliation, this coming together of a family unit that had been broken and is expressed through weeping, through joy, all that pent-up emotion just coming out in tears of joy. And there's a final set of tears that I want to look at. But before them, 
bear with me, turn to the person next to you, and please could you tell them what your favourite Disney film is? Have a moment to consider. I know this might take Ross quite some time. A moment to consider your favourite Disney film, and then tell the person next to you. Now, I'd like you to tell each other why that film is your favourite Disney film. You've told them your favourite one and then say why. What is it about that film that strikes you? What do you like about that story? Well, apparently, the, what, the, the, Disney, the reason why I know somebody would have gone, oh, Disney, but the reason why I've gone Disney is because we all have different genres of film and I know a lot of films would illustrate the point I'm going to go on to make, but I went Disney because I wanted to. Um, right, these are the ones that hang around the top, apparently, the most popular Disney films. Uh, Lion King. A few Lion King fans out there? Yeah. The Lion King's up there. Toy Story. For any of you that went for Toy Story. Finding Nemo. Aladdin. It wasn't a competition, by the way. You didn't, there was no like, right or wrong answer. It's just, these are the most popular ones. Aladdin. Um, Mulan. Yes. Uh, the Little Mermaid. Monsters, Inc. Anyone go for Monsters, Inc.? My daughter did. My, like, same, same mental age as a 10-year-old, Finn. Um, she's pretty cool, though. You're all right. Um, and the, also what was up there, which is my favourite, you've got the, the thing there, Steve, is Beauty and the Beast. Oh, there's a few of you. There's a few of us. Beauty and the Beast. It's my favourite Disney film. And if I had to explain to you why... There's probably a, like a number of reasons. The people that I grew up with, watching it with each weekend, are people that I love and I'm very fond of. So I associated with really nice memories of watching that with certain people. Um, maybe it's the fact that a candlestick and a clock can talk, and a cup and a saucer and a teapot can talk. Maybe it's the French accents that I love. I don't know. Maybe it's the way they talk. Maybe it's that lovely theme throughout that love can change things. Um, but part of me is struck by, throughout Beauty and the Beast, for those of you that don't know the story, it's not very complicated and it's very fairy tale like a spell is put on a castle at the beginning of the film and the prince um, comes under the spell because he doesn't love an ugly woman because of the way she looks. And so a spell is cast on the, put on the castle and everything within it, including the prince, who then turns into that beast right there. The only way the spell can be broken, and it's only got 21 years to happen before he turns 21, is that love comes into his life and um, changes and transforms him from the inside out. And uh, this is what happens at the end, if we have that, Steve. Before we have the last bit at the end, when my boys turn away. Ugh, ugh. Horrible kiss bit at the end. Um, but all the way through the story, there's this, this anticipation that this spell can only be undone, that this beast can only be transformed, that this transformation can only take place if this love is, is awoken within him, which Belle goes on to do. And, and as the story gathers pace and momentum, the hint that this is going to come about gets stronger and stronger and stronger. 
And the last tears I want to take you at into in, that are in chapter 50 is a culmination, I think, of the hint of the whole story of Joseph. Because all throughout his roller coaster life that this man goes on, there are hints throughout, and hopefully you've noticed in your own readings, you've gone through the chapters, that there is something else at work. And that we're building up this momentum and this unveiling, there's this grand unveiling of this beast transformed into a prince. Well, here, I think the final chapters, there's this very overt unveiling of something that's been hinted at throughout this account of Joseph. If you look at chapter 50, it's your final time you need to work at telling the paper. Chapter 50, verses um, 15 to 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father has left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. So verse 20 here, I think, is the summary. It's that grand unveiling of this beast transforming into a prince. I think the story of Joseph, where at times you're like, where is God in this? What on earth? How is this going to work together for good? Verse 20 tells us, you intended to harm me, Joseph says, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives through the the famine and the seven years of plenty which they stored away the grain for there was a saving of many lives out of that and it's amazing the lows of Joseph's life but the sovereignty and providence of God that just is consistent all the way through what we see goes like this Woo! it's quite quite a journey you know sold in a pit rejected by his brothers, raised to chief of the house, then accused of sleeping with someone he didn't sleep with, into prison, then interprets a dream that gets forgotten about, so stays in prison, then interprets another dream, raised up by Pharaoh, then has to oversee the whole famine relief of the country. It's really like this. And there are times when we see God's providence and sovereignty, and go, oh, there it is. Oh, uh, oh yeah, it's there then. It was there all the time. It's just our human, hazy, very narrow little human brains and eyes only get glimpses of it. Whereas here what we see in black and white is that God, Joseph says by his own admission, it is God, his sovereignty, his providence, that has carried and turned this about for good. What about that? The brothers that wanted to harm him under God's sovereignty and providence end up being the boys that get the food they need to stay alive in this undeserved grace from Joseph, where he could say, no, be on your way. Who do you think you are? Get out of here. No, I'm not giving you what you need. Actually, I'm not giving what you need, and you're going to end up in prison. Actually, no, I'm not giving what you need. Have a taste of your own medicine. He could have done all that, 
And Joseph doesn't, because being under the grace and the favour of God, he's described the first description of the Spirit of God being in somebody. Did you spot that this week when you were reading? Spirit of God in Joseph. Means that at that moment, when the tables turn, those brothers get an undeserved love of Joseph, an undeserved feasting of grain that's going to see them through the famine. And it goes on to reunite and rebuild that family. And when you hear that description... Do you think what I think when I hear that description? Do you think of somebody that offers undeserved grace and the saving of many lives for turning over what people intended for harm, turning it around for good? Do you think of the name Jesus when you hear that description? Because go back to our veranda. It's all right, we're undercover because I can hear the rain outside. We're on our swing seat, and we're looking down the street. And we've looked down one end of the street, and we've been in Genesis. Okay, We've looked down at one beginning, one, the beginning, the creation. We've looked at Genesis. Now, I wonder if our view can come up the street slightly. Gone past Joseph's house now. We fast-forwarded through another, a few houses. And in front of us now, up here, is a new heaven and new earth. Shiny streets and pavements. But I just want us to pause about here. The end of the Old Testament, tipping into the new. And what we see in front of us is the cross. What we see begun here in Joseph, or mirrored here in Joseph, described here in the tears of chapter 50, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The undeserved grace and redemption of Jesus on the cross. Because as we gaze on the cross, that's exactly what happened. What people intended to, to put Jesus to death, to stop the extension of God's kingdom, to bring an end to the power that was turning things over, they tried to hang it to a cross in the form of Jesus. And what did God do? What people intended for harm, he turned for good. The saving of the redemption of those that, that wished to come to receive. The brothers went to receive from Joseph that grain. And they got more than that. They got grain and a brother back and a family reunited. When we come to Jesus, we get more than simply the forgiveness of sins. We get reconciliation with our Father. We get hope and a promise for the future. We have union again with the author and the perfecter and the creator of our faith and of us as individual men and women. It's an amazing thing. So that's what we've looked at. We've looked down the street at Genesis. We've seen the cross of Jesus. And one more little tears reference. If we look up the street to the new heaven and the new earth, where it's shiny and it's glimmery, and it's just, it's just, we can just see it. If you turn to Revelation 21. Some of you might already be there in your minds. You know where we're going to. Promise in Revelation 21 to do with tears. Because we've seen Joseph's tears, and we can relate, can't we, to our own tears. The tears of pain, the tears of sadness, tears of regret, tears of disappointment, tears of grief, tears of loss. There are tears of joy, there are tears of laughter. But this is the promise as we look down the street to the other end. I heard a loud voice, this is 21 verse 3, from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live there with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. 
He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's what we have to look forward to. Because who is it that wipes every tear from their eye? I love it, verse 4. He will wipe every tear from their eye. We're told now, currently, Psalm 56, God knows, he sees them, he sees your tears, he feels the emotion behind your tears, and he cares and he's living and he's active. Look at his providence and sovereignty in Joseph's lives. There are times when we see it, and there are more, a lot of times when we don't. In your life, think about your tears. Are there times when you're like, yes, I see the providence and the sovereignty of God, but actually, there's a lot of times when I don't. There's a lot of times when I don't. Well, I pray that as we've gone through Genesis, as we've seen men and women, fallen men and women of God, have moments where they're really proud and celebratory and other moments where they're just like, oh gosh, what have I done? Interwoven in it all is the providence and the sovereignty of God. Not because he's controlling, but because he knows and he cares. And he sees every tear and emotion. And if we allow him... He will take what is meant for harm and knit it together for good. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to harm you, plans not to harm you, but to prosper you, to give you a hope and a future. So let's just close our eyes. Let's just picture that, that street that we're looking out on. Maybe you're looking back down the street thinking about things in the past, tears from the past, ones that may be painful, ones that may be full of joy. And God knows and he cares about them. Now move your gaze up to that cross opposite the house we're sitting in. Maybe you want to come again to the cross, remembering again that what was meant for harm, God turned over into the most beautiful, the most beautiful rescue, rescue plan, redemption of humanity for all time. And he invites us into that, taking away from us that which we've done wrong and giving us fresh hope and life and purpose. Giving that to us which we don't deserve, but which is beyond our comprehension. And as we look down the other end of the street, that assurance and confidence that in time, there will be no more tears of pain or sadness, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that the providence and the sovereignty of God flows from the beginning to the end of that street. Providence and sovereignty of God at the beginning of time. Providence and the sovereignty of God at that cross in the moment where where we tried to be rid of him once and for all, was turned over into the greatest gift ever given. The providence and the sovereignty of God that is in our lives right now, 
Sunday evening sitting here. Every range of emotion and experience that we're going through. The truth of the providence and sovereignty of God that he's moving and he's active and he cares. And the confidence and the hope that we thank God for of the time when he will return and there will be no more pain, no more mourning, no more crying for the old order will have passed away. Jesus, would you hold us until that time, please? Would you knit together things that have been done to us, that have meant for harm? Lord, would you turn them around for good? Things that we have done that have meant harm. Holy Spirit, please, in your grace and mercy, might you turn those around for good? That we would have tears that come from an overspill of joy, of knowing you and of seeing you at work. And when we have those, Lord, can we share them with one another? And if we're in a time where we don't, I pray that as we look down the street, that you at work throughout the Bible and that you at work in our lives, we would stand assured that the providence and sovereignty of God is the pillow on which I lay my head each night. Trusting in you for who you are and what you're doing, when we can see it and when we can't. We thank you. Amen.